0: Folks, uh, let's turn to Second Samuel 19, and uh, here we're going to learn some very important things, I think, about leadership, uh, and some of it, in my opinion, has to be learned negatively. Um, good leaders and good men have clay feet. They have flaws, and sometimes they have big flaws, and I think sometimes the bigger the man, the bigger his flaws are. And the more damage they do. And David's a big man. uh, And he has some significant flaws. Uh, And I think we're going to see it in this text. Uh, David is a man after God's own heart. He he is deservedly held in high esteem by the church. And I know he's held in high esteem by us. uh, But he also is deeply flawed. And in this chapter we're about to read, he has uh, been interpreted differently by various scholars. uh, Many... Uh, would say that David's just doing what David's got to do in the situation that he's in. Some are a little bit more critical. I tend to be a little bit critical myself here of David's behavior. Just before we go into it, I want us to be thinking about that. And my take on this section of 2 of Samuel is that the young David fleeing from Saul Uh, is a much more attractive David than the David that we've been seeing in 2 Samuel. Uh, I mean, I have to admit, I like David in 1 Samuel better than I like David in 2 Samuel. Uh, The David who defeated Goliath, who was willing to go against all the odds uh, because he trusted in the Lord. Uh, And that David has become a bit pragmatic, especially in this chapter as we're going to see. And I think that it's suggestive of probably how all of us are, I think sometimes Sometimes Christianity just works better when it's under oppression and when we're being afflicted than we are when we're successful. I think David was better lonely in a cave than he was high on the throne. Uh, It seemed to me that his faith was working more brilliantly for him when he was struggling than when he was successful. And uh, money and and power uh, have a way of naturally corrupting us and making us arrogant and uh, putting us to sleep in some ways. We just have to be very careful of it. And, you know, as you get older, you tend to have a little bit more money, and sometimes you tend to have a little bit more prestige, and maybe we just need to be very careful about some of the things that we were willing to do when we were trusting the Lord as young men and, uh, and take risks uh, against cultural norms to follow the Lord faithfully. And sometimes we, we lose that edge uh, as we grow up, not grow in the Lord, but just grow up with years. So let's take a, a serious look at this chapter from that angle, and there's a lot for us to, to learn from here in just observing David, uh, some things that we'll learn from David, and certainly even more that we'll learn from the Lord, because as, as we've said before, the main character in First and 2 Samuel is God Himself. So we'll learn a lot about God in this chapter, but we'll also learn some things about David and, and then certainly some things about ourselves. So let's take a look at it. Uh, we're in chapter 19, the second half of verse 8. Uh, and, of course, Absalom has just been killed, of course, in battle. David, David's troops have now defeated the troops of Absalom. Remember, David was in great grief over his son. And rather than celebrating his troops who faithfully went out and risked their lives for the sake of David and the kingdom... David is having his own pity party because, of course, he didn't want Absalom to die. And as we saw last time, David's big problem was he put Absalom ahead of the Lord. He was trying to protect Absalom instead of protecting the kingdom of of God that God had entrusted to him. And that seems to be the reason he fled Jerusalem. Uh, Maybe there were some other reasons too. You know, when David is a young single teenager, you can take risks on your own account. But then when you have wives and children and servants and, and an estate... You get more conservative and more risk averse. That was affecting David too. But David was having his pity party. You remember Joab, the, the very violent uh, commander of his troops, comes to David and says, You've shamed everybody because we've been out there fighting the battle and now you're, you're, acting, you're, you're making us feel as though we did something wrong instead of something right. So Joab prods David and David finally goes out to the city gate and he's sitting out there at the city gate, now willing and ready to review the troops and to express in that way his gratitude for them. That's where we pick up the story uh, in verse 8. Let's read. Now, Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the people of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return, both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shimei, remember him, the son of Girah, the Benjaminite from Baharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his fifteen sons and his twenty servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei the son of Gerah fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my Lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet nor trimmed his beard nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, "Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth?" He answered, "My lord, O king, my uh, my servant deceived me, for your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come back safely home. Now Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food While he stayed at Manam, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be added an added burden to the, my lord the king. Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return, that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. Let him go over with my lord the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you, and all that you desire of me I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king over, went over. And the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away? and brought the king and his household over the Jordan, and all David's men with him. All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Okay, in just reading that, you may not have sensed uh, some of the um, flaws that I'm suggesting in David. Let me let me try to point these out if, if you didn't uh, draw those conclusions yourself. Or you may agree with some of the scholars who feel as though this this wasn't such a bad deal for David. He was just being a good, pragmatic politician. But first of all, let me talk about shrewd leaders. It seems to me that David was shrewd here. There's nothing wrong with being shrewd in one sense. Jesus says that we should be wise as serpents. But he also says we should be innocent as doves. And David is wise as a serpent here. I'm not quite sure he's innocent as a dove. Because shrewd leaders exploit vacuums as opportunities. And once again, there's a sense in which that may be okay. When there is a, a leadership vacuum, leaders tend to go into those vacuums, and that's fine. We need we need leaders in those vacuums, as long as they're going into those leadership vacuums to serve other people, rather than serving themselves. That's the problem I have here. It seems that Israel uh, was uh, arguing with themselves about it, and. David's fleeing Jerusalem instead of disciplining and standing down his own son is the reason we got in this mess in the first place. And Israel is now in confusion and bickering. So if we look at how Israel got to this point in the first place, it's because David, in my opinion, abandoned his post because he was trying to be overly protective toward a rebellious son. Instead of going ahead and paying the price, if your son rebels against God and his kingdom, you have to take... A stand with your son and be willing to lose your son's favor and David had to be willing even to go to war with his son and try to and try to defeat him and we've already seen that when he finally did defeat him he was bitter toward his own troops so David had a weakness he did not rear and discipline his sons as he, as he ought to and left Israel bickering with one another creating a vacuum and the only reason David's thinking about going back and being king is because the Israelites that would be in the northern kingdom you have the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin in the south, and then the ten tribes uh, in the north. It was the ten tribes in the north. David, of course, comes from the south. He's a Judahite. But the ten tribes in the north are starting to argue with each other about who should be the king. There's a political, there's a political and uh, military vacuum, and they're all arguing about it. And David is going to exploit this vacuum and use what they're saying about him to try to launch himself back into his position as king. And you can look in verses 11 and 12 secondly and see David then manipulates his relatives. And shrewd leaders will play one against the other. They triangulate and you can see them doing this. Some of the, some presidents have been quite famous for their triangulation. They get one group fighting against the other. It's kind of like when your kid... It goes to you and asks for something, you say no, so then they go to your mother and get get your wife and you into an argument, and he's won. You notice even the Apostle Paul did it. He got the Sadducees and the Pharisees arguing against each other, and he slips out the back door almost. So triangulation is a one of the favorite tactics of politicians, and David's using it here. He goes to his own flesh and blood, his own distant relatives in Judah, and he says, are you all going to be the last ones to invite me back to be the king? I mean, these people in the north are already talking about it. They want me to come back. So he's working one against the other. Now, why am I being critical of this? Well, because we're going to see, I think, that the way David handles this situation after a coward, in a cowardly manner uh, in and in an irresponsible manner, leaving Jerusalem and uh, not handling his son properly, Now he plays one against the other, north against south. And you're going to find that those two are divided later after Solomon. And I think that David contributes to that division that occurs 50 or 60 years later by the way that he handles these two parties. What should he have done? Well, if you hear some people in the north saying they want you to be king, you call them in and discuss it with them. And then you realize, well, you're not hearing anything from... Judah. So you say, hey guys, let's, let's have a, uh, a consultation, and let's bring everybody to the table, and let's talk about it. And David, obviously, should have, in Mahanam, should have convened a conference with people from the north, people from the south, so that he hears what everybody's thinking, what all their concerns are, and then he empowers them equally together and gets them connected with each other. And any kingdom that's going to operate well politically, It's not just the king and then a bunch of serfs, you have a whole system of people who are in leadership positions and you empower those leaders. Instead of playing them against each other, you get them together to work together. And how desperately right now our nation needs a president who knows how to bring Republicans and independents and Democrats and some people who don't know what they are, bring them all together and get them to respect each other and work together. And there are all kinds of reasons why I know this is difficult right now. It's not any one person's fault. But anybody who's in leadership is not there to play off everybody else against each other so that it launches them into a leadership position and makes them the inevitable choice, the only one who can keep peace. No, an effective godly leader is getting people to work together laterally as well as working with him horizontally. David fails to do that. And I don't know, I don't know if he's in depression over Absalom's death. I don't know if he's, but it just seems that his whole personality is somewhat changed here uh, because of the way he's mismanaged things before. It just seems like things are cascading in a negative way for him. So right here he's exploiting the vacuum, but he also then manipulates people and says. Well, you know, these northerners, these people who aren't even my relatives, they want me to be king. I don't know about you. Of course, that scares the daylights out of everybody. So if the northerners do make him king, David will come down here and really, he'll take our heads off. So, uh, but David then uh, begins to co-opt them. Verse 13, he co opts his former enemies. Now, once again, if your intention is wise as well as your methods being wise, this can be a good thing. Those who are your former enemies, you reassure them that you're going to take them into this new administration. They're going to have a seat at the table. They're going to be empowered. But David goes to Amasa, who was, let's see, his first cousin, I guess. And uh, and he says, um, and Amasa, remember, was the one who was leading Absalom's troops. So Amasa was the opposing general against David. And David is now saying, Amasa, I'll make you the commander of my troops in the renewed kingdom. So he's co-opting Amasa so that Amasa will say, okay, David's not going to take my head off. And then that encourages everybody else in Judah to realize, if you sided with Absalom, there's going to be amnesty, there's going to be clemency for everybody. So that was a signal, it's going to be safe, you get clemency, everybody's going to be reunited, and we're not going to fight old war wounds uh, in the reunited kingdom. So in one sense, it was a good political move, but it looks as though the way David's behaving, it's just, it's, it's a bad move. Amasa rebelled against the kingdom of God. Amasa rebelled against David. And we're going to see later on in the text, Amasa and Joab despise each other, and Joab ends up murdering Amasa. What do you expect? You just tell Amasa he's going to take Joab's place. You know Joab's personality. Amasa's got a death warrant on him uh, from a Joab because Joab's a violent man. David didn't solve any that. He's just, he's just doing pragmatic surface politics to pull this thing together so that he can be re-enthroned as king in Jerusalem. That's the reason I'm, I'm really disappointed uh, with his performance here. He's just setting everything up for further term, turmoil instead of uniting uh, the kingdom together. So he co opts his former enemies. And I mentioned some some Proverbs here, and you can look at those later. But, you know, the the Proverbs I'm listing here are Proverbs of Solomon. And it's just interesting to me, Solomon would have been a a young man, maybe a teenager at this time, and he's observing all this stuff that his dad's doing. And later on, Solomon pens the Proverbs. And I'm just thinking, where does Solomon get a lot of this wisdom He got a lot of from just observing his dad and his administration, positively and negatively. And so I've tried to identify where I think Solomon may have learned some of his proverbial lessons uh, in David's kingdom. And then fourthly, in verses 14 through 15, we see that David legitimizes himself with a formal ceremony. And he does that in Gilgal. Now, Gilgal was a significant place because Joshua mustered his troops in Gilgal, you know, years before, um, Samuel held court, if you will, in Gilgal. Gilgal sort of had the, the reputation of a Geneva sort of uh, reputation. Uh, Gilgal was the place where Saul was sort of recommissioned uh, as king. So Gilgal had a reputation, kind of like, I guess, Philadelphia, you know, sort of a historical place uh, in the colonies. And Gilgal kind of had that reputation. So David is going to go there to be re-inaugurated as king. But the problem is, Judah, it seems, was the only group invited. I mean, what's, what's wrong here? David plays the north against the south. And then when the south comes on board, his flesh and blood, his extended family, his state, if you will, he only invites his state to be involved in the inauguration. What does that do to all the other states? It's not obvious. So David's political machinations are very short-sighted, very short-term, uh, and very self-centered. And it's going to create even more chaos in Israel. And I just think about you know our leadership roles, whether it's in business or in our medical practice, wherever you may be, or if it's in the church. You know, your service in the church is... N- <laughs> is not to exalt you. Your service in the church is to serve other people. Your service in the church is, you know, if, if you happen to be on a staff somewhere or in a parachurch organization, the purpose of that organization is not to give you a job. And David's is acting as though the purpose of Israel is to give him a job, you know, the best job in the land. As though the purpose of the United States is to make me president. That's the way he's acting. And that's the way some men act. And sometimes it's the way they act in their families. You know, the purpose of this family is to make me successful and make me look good. No, the the purpose of the head of the family is to serve everybody else so that they get along. And if they're not getting along, you've got yourself a major ministry issue right in front of you. and You've got to deal with that. And that's what dads do. They help everybody successfully get along together. And David just seems to have abandoned that. And once again, maybe he's depressed. Maybe he's afraid. Maybe he's just beat up by now. I don't know. But you'll find that even during this period... You know, David's productive poetry and hymnody has declined. You know, we got a lot of hymnody out of David early on when he was running away. and You get a lot of his psalms uh, where he's pleading for the mercy of the Lord and asking the Lord to help him. And now, I don't know anything that relates to this chapter. It's just kind of like David's dried up a little bit. So, these tactics of a, of a shrewd leader, David is showing, and he's, he's not combining worldly wisdom with deep, profound wisdom uh, from the Lord, it seems to me. Secondly, in verses 16 through 40, he looks like a very calculating politician. And once again, I, I don't know that it's evil for politicians to calculate. I mean, you know, you're trying to get votes. Uh, you need to know every district in the country and who the leaders are there. and got to figure out... You know what it's going to take to win, and I mean I'm not opposed to any of that in politics, but your your methodology has to be godly, and then your purpose or your end or your mission has to be a godly mission. And David here just seems to be calculating. Period. First of all, let's deal with Shimei. You remember Shimei, who who was a Benjaminite, so he would have been allied with the old Saulite kingdom. So when Saul was killed and David took charge, now the Benjaminites are no longer in charge in the throne. Now it's a Judahite throne. So Shimei is a Benjaminite. And obviously when David was leaving Jerusalem, you can see that he got out a lot of his frustrations against David and said, David, you caused this when you took over from Saul, one of my relatives, and you took the throne. And Shimei cursed him and threw dirt on him. And everybody was willing to kill him right there. And David, remember, humbly said, "No, that's the Lord speaking. Just leave him alone." Well, here Shimei knows he's in deep weeds. Uh, David's coming back. He's not leaving Jerusalem. He's going to be coming back to Jerusalem. Shimei gets a thousand Benjaminites. I don't know if they were soldiers. I don't. I probably not. That might have been threatening. He just comes with a thousand people, and you know that was shrewd on Shimei's part. Uh, now there'll be a thousand witnesses to see what David's going to do with all the Saul people. Is he going to co-opt them, include them in his kingdom, or is he going to take all their heads off? And these thousand witnesses are going to see how David deals with Shimei. But Shimei was a king curser. And in Deuteronomy, that's a capital offense. You You don't curse the Lord's anointed. You don't curse the king of your people. Shimei did it. Well, uh, Abishai, one of the commanders, military guys, says, let me take his head off for you. And David says, what do I have to do, do with you, son of Zeruiah? Well, who was Zeruiah? Zeruiah was David's sister. So this is his... I'm sorry. Zeruiah was uh, uh, David's aunt. So this was his cousin. And he says, what do I have to do with you, sons of Zeruiah? Uh, yeah, because... Uh, uh, you know, he's, he's going to wreak vengeance. And David here wants to show how merciful he's being, I suppose. But it seems to me that what he's really trying to do is simply, once again, co-opt the Saulites. And you can co-opt them, but at what expense? Um, you're, you're, a guy with a capital offense is, is being let go. And it's going to, in some ways, in my opinion, it's going to encourage further misbehavior in the kingdom. So David obviously feels that he must uh, calm the nerves of the Benjaminites and uh, let them know that their heads are not going to roll. But there is no indication here, really, that Shimei had a change of heart. He's just covering his butt, uh, to tell you the truth. And David lets him get by with it. So once again, I put a little proverb down there for you. I think Solomon was watching all of this going, mm-hmm, uh, and later on reflecting on it. So, in your calculation to try to co-opt people, you have to be very careful that you're not also encouraging sin in the wrong way. Secondly, if you look at verses 24 through 30, here he's dealing with Mephibosheth. Now, you remember that Ziba was a a very successful servant of Saul, and he then became a servant of, of David. And when David showed his commitment to his best friend Jonathan by including his son Mephibosheth at his David's table, he was keeping covenant with Jonathan. You know, he made that covenant with his best friend back in 1 Samuel and said that he would protect Jonathan's household. And he, he actually goes looking for Mephibosheth, who went into exile, because when you know when a dynasty gets defeated, That whole family has to leave town because usually their heads come off. So Mephibosheth had gone north. David went to find him so that he could demonstrate steadfast love, chesed, to someone of Jonathan's line. He finds Mephibosheth and does that and gives Ziba to Mephibosheth as his servant and sets Mephibosheth up. Now you remember that when David was leaving Jerusalem, Ziba comes to him with a couple of donkeys and a lot of supplies. And in answer to where Mephibosheth is, apparently Ziba just lied through his teeth and said that Mephibosheth was back home, excited that the kingdom of Saul was going to be restored. Because, of course, Mephibosheth was a grandson of Saul. And Ziba just lied about him, apparently. But Mephibosheth wasn't there to defend himself because, as he says in this account, he had asked for a donkey to be able to go with David, and his servant took the donkey away, probably gave it to David, and then lied and said Mephibosheth didn't want to come. So David rapidly, without hearing two sides of the story, and I put that proverb here, Solomon always says, don't draw your conclusion until you've heard both sides of the story. And I find over and over again, the guys will listen to something from somebody, two disputants. And listen to one of those disputants and actually believe what they say. Let me tell you something about people who are in dispute. When you hear one person, at most you're hearing 50% of the story. And the 50% you're hearing is distorted. So it's not to be... I mean, you can be sympathetic. You're not saying the other guy's a liar. It's just simply that you've learned a long time ago, and you learn from the Bible, you don't draw conclusions until you hear both people, and preferably hear both people in the same room at the same time. Now you can begin to, like a good judge, you can begin to draw some conclusions tentatively after you've heard the testimony when they're in each other's presence. You'll notice even in a civil court, the pagans know better. You don't have someone give witness in a courtroom unless the accused is in the room to hear it. The judge is not going to hear something from an accuser unless the accused is in the room to hear it. And then he and his attorney have an opportunity to respond. Should we not be at least as wise as the the civil courts? Should Christian men not at least practice that kind of care? And David didn't practice that kind of care. He, Of course, I know he was fleeing the city. He was doing it uh, quickly. But he drew a conclusion about Mephibosheth that he should not have drawn. And here Mephibosheth has not cut his toenails. He's not... Cut his hair. He's not taken a bath since David left Jerusalem. Why? He's been in grief and mourning the whole time. And he comes up to David, finally says, "David, I was with you the whole way, and your servant Ziba lied." And in this text, Mephibosheth calls David, "My Lord, the King." Five times. Do you think he's making a point? Uh, I'm your servant. And you're my Lord, the King. And he submits himself to David very humbly. He's probably the only repentant person in the whole bunch here. And David has to realize he made a big mistake when he drew the conclusion that Ziba was telling the truth and that Mephibosheth was the turncoat. It's just the opposite. Ziba was a liar. It looks like he was. So David now, once again, this is a critique of David. He reluctantly rectifies the injustice. Why do I say reluctantly? Well, look at the conclusion. Mephibosheth is giving him a speech. And David interrupts him, kind of like a Supreme Court just, justice does. You know, if you're arguing a case in the Supreme Court, you won't get your whole case out because they just, they'll just interrupt you with questions and comments and challenges. And David, you know, is getting to the point, he says, I don't need to hear anymore. And then he says, instead of saying Mephibosheth, I'm so sorry, and embracing him and assuring him of his affection. I mean, think about David and Jonathan and those years they spent together and the affection they had for each other. Think about how Jonathan willingly gave up his dynasty because he knew that the Lord had laid his hand upon David. And he gave up the Benjaminite, Saulite dynasty and handed it over to David and supported him and asked David one thing, be faithful to my family. And David, rather than acknowledging the mistake that he had made, and the lack of trust he had put in Mephibosheth. He just says, that's enough. Y'all just split the property. Split the property. Great. That's not even justice. And it was given reluctantly, it seems to me. And so you, now you have a crook and a liar that you got to split the property with. And it was yours before that. So it's, it's David is cutting deals right and left, it looks to me, in a very pragmatic way. Rather than being... The man who insists on God's way and God's righteousness in every situation. And when he faced Goliath, he says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who thinks that he can despise the Lord and his armies this way? And David was completely incensed at the injustice and the unrighteousness of what was going on as a young man. And now he's, he's, he's sort of diluted his life. And become more pragmatic and say, well, business is business. And lost his passion. And I just say to those of us who have been Christians for a while, let's just take no from this. And let's get back to David and Goliath days. Let's get back to 1 Samuel. Let's be the men that we, we, we wanted to be when we first started out with the Lord. And let's get it going again. And some of us have found ways because we've, to compromise because we, we own more now, we have more you know, risk to take, and we become less uh, passionate and less willing to sacrifice everything. We become kind of protecting our fortresses sometimes, and protecting our states, or protecting our reputations. And I think this is a great warning for us. Don't do that. You're going to end up actually, in the end, you end up denying the very people that you you love the most. It seems to me that's what's happening with with David. So, once again, uh, i put some Proverbs there for you that I think we can learn from. Well, notice thirdly, David, in his sort of pragmatic political way, he pays debts with patronage. And once again, Barzillai I, I, seems to me as a you know wonderful supporter of David. He was a wealthy man who to, had mercy on David, was very, very kind to him. And David is just offering him a political favor, and I, I know that's, that's common practice, and there's nothing immoral about it, but it just seems to be one more thing. Just, you know, patronage in the in the political kingdom that David was establishing. And what you want to be sure you do, instead of having Chimham, whom he may never have met and not known, if you want to lead effectively, you've got to recruit godly, competent, committed people on your team. And you don't just do favors for them because they're family members or they they gave you money at one time or did you a favor. Now you're going to do them a favor by empowering them. And especially when you're dealing with the kingdom of God, if you're dealing in church matters or parachurch matters, uh, especially there, you're just going to promote somebody because they were good to you? No, you've got to make a decision of wisdom. What's in the interest of the people of God? What's in the interest of the people I'm serving? Who needs to be on that team? And David's just empowering people right and left to build a coalition that will allow him to be king. That's what it looks like to me anyway. Once again... I know I'm being critical, maybe too critical, but I don't want us to be uh, led astray because David did it. You know, like I said, big men make big mistakes. And David was a really big man, and I think he made some big mistakes. But notice, fourthly, these politicians usually win. (laughs) It's true. I mean, and it's hard for us. Psalm 37, you know, we get jealous. We look at these people who use all these methodologies, and they end up winning. It seems like every time. You say, well, I got you know, I'm going to take a page out of their book. Well, don't. Uh, Because what appears to be winning is not really winning. As I've said already, this kingdom divides up pretty soon. And I think it's because of the way David put it back together. I don't think he put it together well. And I think he he was not thinking in godly terms. He was not thinking in God's interest. He was only thinking in terms of his own hide. Now, thirdly, notice that this shrewd, calculating leadership divides the people. Verses 41 through 43. You can you can anticipate what's going to happen. Uh, here, the people of Israel say, why did you folks from Judah steal away the king? You stole him. And they said, we were talking about having back his king. And you had this little private, you know, relationship with him. Your family, you know, favors that you all give each other is little little family thing y'all do. You leave us out. You go to Gilgal and have a re-inauguration. We're left out. What are y'all doing? And the Judahites, instead of saying, oh, we're sorry, you know, of course. How stupid of us. We want to We want to have one kingdom with you. We're willing to back up. Let's just redo this whole thing, cancel everything. Let's start over. Instead of anything like that, they say, well, we didn't take anything from the king. He didn't give us any meals. He didn't promise us any favors, which is a big lie. He's promising favors right and left, including... The opposing general to be his new general, there were favors going everywhere, but they deny it didn't, he didn't do anything for us, and then the Israelites say, "Look, we got ten tribes, you got two. We have ten we have ten uh shares of stock in David. you got two shares. so what's this? You all acting and then what do you, what do you get at the very end of this text? The one who shouts the loudest wins. So the Judahites were fiercer. In their comments, then the Israelites. Good. So the loud man wins. And that's the way David puts his kingdom together. It's a huge mistake. And these guys keep fighting against each other for the next hundreds of years. And, of course, they they divide over it a few years later. So um, this kind of calculation uh, leads to their dividing by tribes later on. They're not really listening to each other at all. There's no humility here. There's no confess- confession on anybody's part. There's no uh, reconciliation commission as South Africa had after their big mess. There's nothing here to pull people together. There's no mediation. And that's exactly what's needed is a king who will be a mediator among his people and a king who will mediate between the people and God and who will bring God's will and God's way to bear upon the leadership of the, of the church. And a man who will insist, Matthew 18 style, that everybody's going to deal with each other in an honest and fair and just and affectionate way. They definitely need a mediator. Well, what can we learn from this? First of all, David was not perfect and neither are you. Neither am I. So it's a good reminder. God uses imperfect men like us. Every one of us have probably done every one of these things at one time or another. We're just like David. So we can't get on our high horse. And when we're criticizing David, we're actually criticizing ourselves. He's, you know, he's, a, he's a man after God's own heart, but he's also an awful lot like us. Uh, so we're humbled. Number two, we notice that unrepentant sin cascades, escalates, divides, and destroys. When you leave your sin unconfronted, unrepented, it's not going anywhere but bad. It's going to continue to divide and destroy, and it gets worse. And if you don't repent, what you do is you develop some other reactions and coping mechanisms. It's kind of like a lie. You have to tell a lie to cover the lie, and then you have to tell another two lies to cover that lie. And that's the way sin works. It just cascades. It just starts rolling down like a ball down the stairs. It gets worse and worse and worse. And we'll see it in the kingdom of David here as these chapters go on. Thirdly, God uses even our intentional evil to accomplish His good purposes. God uses even our intentional evil to accomplish His good purposes. It's amazing that this kingdom survives. It's amazing that the church survives because just look at us. We're just a room full of Davids who do stuff like this, and the church still survives. Why? God sovereignly is overseeing His church and preserving her. And even when we offer our poor and defective leadership, He's protecting His people even beyond the damage that we do. It's amazing. And God uses David. God uses David. And He uses David you so you don't give up because you've screwed up so badly you think you know you just completely disqualified yourself no you get back on your horse and let's ride right back into battle remembering God uses you God uses David so yes we can get really discouraged at our own failures our own iniquities our own propensities but God continues graciously to use us and to protect his church fourthly God keeps His promise to us. You'll notice David reigns forever. God keeps His promise. So as bad as we may be, God made a promise, and although David didn't always keep his promises, and David didn't deserve God's covenant promise, God keeps it. And you'll see that God kept David on the throne until his death. And then right on down the line, a descendant of David was always on the throne of Israel. And right now, a descendant of David is on the throne of Israel. His name is Jesus Christ, David's greater son. And Jesus Christ has come into the world to be the perfect mediator. And you'll notice that Jesus also was wise, especially during Holy Week, you see it, when he's being confronted by political opponents, and Jesus stands to lose everything, including his life. Sometimes he'll be quiet and not say a word. Sometimes He'll give an answer that lets the other person know they're really stupid. You know, because He can show their foolishness with just just a word. And sometimes He will actually speak out prophetically against them and make them even more angry. But Jesus' whole purposes are to glorify His Father in heaven by saving His people. And He'll save us sometimes by gentleness. Sometimes He saves us by being very blunt with us. But Jesus is constantly seeking to do His Father's will to glorify and honor His Father. You'll notice also that He comes not only as mediator, perfect mediator, between God and men, but He comes perfect mediator between men and men. And when you get to Matthew 18, who gave us Matthew 18? The Lord Jesus Christ gave it to us as one of the five major sermons in Matthew. And that sermon in Matthew 18 is about how we are to forgive each other, how we are to deal with injustices among each other, how we're to hold each other accountable, how we're to forgive each other, how we're to be gracious with each other. And so Jesus doesn't come just to build a relationship with Himself and you. He comes to build a relationship with Himself and you and the brotherhood so you get along with everybody. You're being trained laterally how to have healthy relationships. There's the perfect David who comes and lays down his life on Calvary's cross. Instead of wanting to launch himself to have an earthly kingdom, and buying favors from everybody and trading and triangulating, Jesus Christ comes to give His own life and lay it down so as to exalt every one of us. That's what the king is supposed to do. That's exactly what Jesus does. And you'll notice that Jesus keeps the Davidic kingdom going until He sends His own Son, who is the ultimate son of David, to come and accomplish this for His people Israel. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, you've become the true Israelite. You've you become a member of the kingdom, and He's your king. Behold your king, brothers. He is the perfect mediator. And you can see how God has carefully orchestrated all things through history, carefully kept together a kingdom that never deserved to be kept together, and preserved the kings who didn't deserve to be kings so that the ultimate Savior could come. Fifthly and lastly, notice that God promises an anointed one to come who will faithfully shepherd His people. And that's the Jesus we've been talking about. He is the anointed one. And, of course, Jesus has his Shimei, Jesus has his Amasa, Jesus has his Absalom, doesn't he, with, with Judas. And you don't find Jesus trying to protect Judas at the risk of losing everybody's salvation. Jesus disciplines his relationship with Judas as David didn't with Absalom. And Jesus represents the kingdom fairly and mercifully but righteously to everybody and entrusts His life into the hands of His Father so that His last words on Calvary's cross, Father, into Thy hands I commend my spirit. So even as He's dying, He's trusting the Lord. Why? Jesus has said on multiple occasions before Good Friday, that on the third day I'll be raised again. His disciples didn't understand what in the world he meant, but Jesus knew what he meant, and Jesus believed in the resurrection, and he was willing to pay the price now, and be the leader now, and suffer now, because he believes in in eternal glory that the Father gives him upon his resurrection and ascension into heaven. And brothers, that is the same situation we're in, because we are now the little anointed ones. That's what Christian means little anointed ones, little Christs. And we too believe in the resurrection. When Jesus Christ was resurrected, He's the first of many brothers who are to be resurrected, says the Apostle Paul. We believe in the resurrection. We have a long view. We're not going to make short-term, pragmatic, shrewd, but ungodly decisions. Why? We believe in the resurrection. We believe in eternal life. We have something to live for. We have something to die for. And David in this chapter has lost his vision. And it'll come back to him. David's a man after God's own heart, but here he's lost his vision. I don't know, maybe some of us have lost ours. And Good, good Friday and Holy Week would be a good week to get it back. And to remember why we want our vision back. We want it back because we want to enjoy Christ. We want to imitate Him. We want to know the Father. We want to be useful in His hands. And we're willing to wait for the day of vindication. Friday is a dark day, but brothers, Sunday's coming. It's just around, just at the end of the weekend. Sunday's coming. Hang on. Go through Good Friday. This life, sometimes the whole life feels like a Good Friday. Go through Good Friday because Sunday's coming. That's the message that David and all of us little Davids need to remember as we go through this life. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this very candid chapter in the Bible, which shows us something of the sloppiness of the way that we sometimes put things together in your kingdom and thoughtlessly cobble together things that enable us to survive in this life, and yet we sacrifice the deepest core values of the things that we cherish and the things we'd want to commit ourselves to. And we would pray just as David taught us to pray that, uh, that you'd forgive us and cleanse us like with hyssop. And make us white as snow again. And restore to us, as David prayed in his youth, restore to us the joy of our salvation. That we may praise you and make your name known among the nations. And Lord, you're so gracious, you're so kind, you're so forgiving. We now would trust you that you would do just that. And give us a renewal of life today. That we may go out as mediators in this world, mediators between you and all of your creatures and mediators among men and women everywhere, that we may bring the peace of the gospel uh, to this world. May, uh, Lord, your kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven. And now, Father, in this Maundy Thursday, we praise you and thank you for your love for us, for cherishing us as your disciples. And we pray that indeed we would love you and love one another as we have been loved.